So Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. You can find this on page 1012 of the Church Bible if you'd like to follow it there. Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Jesus predicts his death. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The way of the cross. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters, who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean to follow him? Three simple questions, but the answers to these three simple questions can make all the difference. The way we answer these questions today will one day decide over life and death, that is, eternal life and eternal death. That sounds very dramatic, doesn't it? Well, it is dramatic. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean to follow him? These questions are about the one who plays the lead role in the drama of human history. These questions aim to understand his true identity, his central work, and the biggest challenge for those who bear his name. These three simple questions, dear friends, are so important that Jesus himself addresses them. Jesus knows that there are hurdles on the path of true discipleship. Hurdles his first disciples had to take and 
hurdles that all of us have to take. The evangelist Mark deals with these three hurdles in Mark chapter 8. And let's start with the first hurdle and the question of Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? Mark tells us that Jesus has finished his ministry in Galilee. He fed a crowd of 4,000 people and he healed a blind man in the village of Bethsaida. Now he has taken his disciples some 30 miles northwards to the area of Caesarea Philippi. That was a good 10-hour walk. We are not told why Jesus went there. Perhaps he needed some rest and also some time for prayer and preparation. Prayer and preparation for the next chapter of his earthly ministry, the next chapter which, which would see him dying on a cross. Mark doesn't explicitly tell us the purpose of this 10-hour journey, but perhaps the clue is in the name of the area Jesus and his disciples were entering. In the Old Testament times, the area of Caesarea Philippi was known as Baal Hermon. It was the center of Baal worship. Baal was one of the most important gods of the Canaanites. They revered him as a, the god of fertility and in that capacity gave him the title Lord of the Earth. During the, the Greek period, much later, the city of Caesarea Philippi was called Peneus because of its famous place of worship, a cave devoted to Pan. Pan was the Greek god of nature and fertility who was famous for his sexual skills. Later then, King Herod, the Roman Jewish client king, renamed the city for Julius Caesar, the Roman emperor, and built a temple for Caesar in the city. On his death in the year 44 BC, Caesar was officially recognized as a god and worshipped as such. To cut a long story short, the city and region of Caesarea Philippi had a long, long history of pagan worship. It's surely not by chance that Jesus brings up the issue of his identity in a place that is well known for the worship of pagan gods. When God is at work, dear friends, things don't happen by chance. Things never happen by chance. There's always an intention, there's always a meaning, and there is always a purpose. And that's also the case here. Jesus wants his disciples to recognize the true God in an area that is known for all the false gods. Jesus has come to reveal the true God to a lost and confused world. He is not afraid of Baal, who couldn't light the sacrifice prepared by 450 of his prophets. Jesus is not afraid of pagan caves and Roman temples and Roman emperors, because he is the son of the one true God, the living God. And as such, he doesn't want his followers to be afraid of all these false gods. False gods and empty ideologies around them. But they need to understand who he is. And so he asks them the question, who do people say I am? Who do people say I am? 
And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Jesus began the conversation by asking his disciples what other people were saying about him. That was an impersonal question, but an easy one for his disciples to answer. There were all kinds of opinions and rumors in the air. Some people thought that Jesus was John the Baptist, who had returned from the dead. Others believed that he was the prophet Elijah. They pointed to a verse in the Old Testament book of Malachi, in which God had promised to send Elijah to announce the coming of the Messiah. Finally, there were those who didn't identify Jesus with a particular prophet, but they didn't have any doubt that he was a true prophet. They, Jesus spoke with authority. He spoke with an authority that came from God. People could sense that. No, he must be a prophet sent by God, they said. To sum it up, most people believed that Jesus was in some way special. He was a special prophet. That was the common talk in Galilee about this young preacher from Nazareth. Well, what's the common talk today? What's the common talk today in Scotland? What are people saying about Jesus in Scotland and the rest of the UK? According to a poll carried out in 2020, 15% of Britons don't think that Jesus existed at all. 15% of people in this country believe that Jesus never existed. In other words, he's just a character of fiction, like Harry Potter or Doctor Who. The stories of his birth, life, death, and resurrection are just myths that the early Christians borrowed from pagan religions, so some atheists claim. 41% say that Jesus was a historical figure, but not a divine figure. He was just a human being like you and me. Some of those who hold that view believe that he was either a political revolutionary or a failed prophet. Others say that Jesus was a religious guru, a moral philosopher, a wise man, a faith healer, a magician, or a hypnotist. When it comes to Jesus, people's Convictions, people's views differ greatly. When it comes to Jesus, many people get it wrong. That hasn't changed in the last 2,000 years. And like for us today, it was easy for Jesus' first disciples to record what others thought about their master. That was a pretty straightforward exercise. But what about their own convictions? What about their own views? regarding Jesus. Who did the disciples think Jesus was? Jesus turns the spotlight on them. But what about you? Who do you say I am? What about you? Who do you say I am? Perhaps unsurprisingly, it is Peter who answers that question. He, he answered that question on behalf of all the other disciples. And he says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Today we use the word Christ almost as a personal name for Jesus, but actually it's a title. 
Christ derives from the Greek word Christos and means anointed one. It translates the Hebrew word Mashiach, from which we get our English word Messiah. You are the Christ, says Peter. What a powerful statement. It is even more powerful when we consider that Peter makes this statement in a region with a long history of pagan worship. You are the Christ. You are our hope, not Pan, not the Roman emperor. In Matthew's gospel, Peter's statement, Peter's statement reads, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, you are the Messiah. You are not just another prophet. No, you are the promised one, the anointed one. The anointed one we have been waiting for. You are the one God has sent to set us free. Peter's conf Peter confesses Jesus' messiahship. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus accepts Peter's confession as true. Yes, he is the Christ. With this confession, Peter and his fellow disciples have taken the first hurdle on the path of discipleship. And I'm sure most of us here have taken that hurdle too. I'm confident that most of us con can confess Jesus as Christ this morning, the Son of the living God and the Lord of our lives. Well, it's a confession that people in 21st century Scotland need to hear. And perhaps there is someone here this morning or watching us from home who needs to hear that confession too. You need to hear it because you haven't taken that first hurdle yet. You haven't taken the first fence. Instead, you might be still sitting on the fence, not decided. But what about you? Who do you say I am? If Jesus asked you that question today, what would your answer be? Well, let me rephrase that. Not if Jesus would ask you that question today. Actually, Jesus is asking you that question today. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Given the fact that Jesus accepts Peter's confession of his messiahship, given the fact that he accepts to be the son of the living God, we are left only with three possibilities. The 19th century Scottish preacher John Duncan put it this way. He wrote, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud or... He was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. In other words, Jesus was either mad, bad, or God. There are no other options, mad, bad, or God. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Well, if Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, there is no need to be here at St. Thomas's this morning. If Jesus is indeed a madman or a bad man, we are all wasting our time this morning here. 
We're wasting our time. If Jesus is not the one he claims to be, we should walk out here right now and switch off the light stream, live stream. However, if Jesus is the Christ, you shouldn't wait anymore to put your trust, but to put your trust in him. If he is the son of the living God, you should bow down and receive him as your Lord and Savior. You are the Christ, says Peter. He and his fellow disciples take the first hurdle. But you see, Peter and his fellow disciples fall disastrously at the second one. So let's turn to that second hurdle and the question, why did he come? Now that his disciples have grasped that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, it's time for them to realize what kind of Messiah he, he has come to be. It's time to, for them to understand why Jesus has come, what his mission is all about. Well, Jesus doesn't beat about the bush. Straight away, he talks about suffering, rejection, and death. Mark writes, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Please note that Jesus says that these things must happen. They are necessary. They are part of God's timetable. They are not unfortunate accidents of history. Jesus shares his mission with his disciples. It's the mission, it's a mission of suffering. It's the mission of a suffering Messiah, of a suffering Christ. And Peter, Peter doesn't like what he's hearing. He doesn't like it at all. Mark tells us that Peter took him, Jesus, aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus' words were a shock to Peter's system. The Messiah to be rejected by the religious leaders? No, they would never do such a thing. The Messiah to suffer? Now that's just unconceivable. The Messiah to be killed? No way. Peter struggled with Jesus' words because he wanted Jesus to be a successful, a victorious Messiah. He struggled with Jesus' words because he wanted Jesus to fulfill other expectations than God's expectations. Peter hopes for the Messiah were influenced by the expectations that so many in Israel had at that time. They expected the Messiah, the Christ, to be a political figure. They were anticipating a warrior who would drive out the Roman colonialists restore Israel for her former glory, and rule over the nations with power. For Peter, the thought of a suffering, broken, dead Messiah was an unthinkable thought. And so he took Jesus aside and told him that he shouldn't say such things. He rebuked him. Yes, Peter had just made a powerful confession. You are the Christ. But he still had some serious misconceptions about Jesus and about his mission. 
Friends, are there any misconceptions about Jesus among Christians today? What do you think? Can you think of any misconceptions that believers have about Jesus? Well, let me mention a few. Some Christians see Jesus as the one who fixes all our problems. They see Jesus as a kind of divine Bob the Builder. Can we fix it? Yes, we can. Whatever difficulty they face, Jesus will sort it out. And if it doesn't, then it's their own fault. Then their faith has not been strong enough. Did Jesus ever promise to sort out all our problems? No, he didn't. But what he promised was to be with his disciples to the very end of the age. He promised to give them the Holy Spirit who would teach them, guide them, and help them to keep their eyes fixed on their master. And last but not least, Jesus promised renewal and rest to those who would come to him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus has never sorted out all our problems, but he has dealt with our biggest problem. On the cross, he has dealt with our broken relationship with God. For other Christians, Jesus is the nice, gracious bloke who will never judge us and our attitudes and behaviors. He loves us so much that he doesn't really care if we, if we do wrong, if we sin. He loves us so much that he doesn't require any massive changes in our lives. Well, that's a far cry from the real Jesus. What did Jesus say to the invalid he, invalid he healed at the pool of Bethesda? See all your sins, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Friends, Jesus is gracious and he is full of compassion, but he is not a free thinker who has no regard for moral principles. No, the Bible even tells us that he will return to judge the living and the dead. On Judgment Day, people will have to give an account for their lives. And according to Jesus, even for every careless word they have spoken. Quote. Finally, there are those who treat Jesus like a powerful patron who rewards those who are faithful to him with spiritual success. And this concept of Jesus is very popular in evangelical circles in the UK. The idea is that to faithful churches, Jesus will give new converts, new members, new ministry opportunities, and new spheres of influence. Jesus, the powerful Lord Sugar of the church, who promotes those who are doing what is right in his eyes and fires those who fail him. This is the Western version of the prosperity gospel that we can find in so many parts of Africa and which promises health and wealth to those who give sacrificially to the church. But like the Jesus of the prosperity gospel, Jesus, the powerful patron, is a misconception of our Lord. Yes, the Bible talks about rewards, but these rewards will be received in heaven. 
Yes, the Bible mentions spiritual success, but it makes clear that there are much more important things than that. You see, when the 20, 30, 72 disciples returned uh, from their mission trip, they were excited about the tremendous results of their mission. Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name, they said. And what did Jesus say? How did he respond? He said, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus is not the patron rewards his disciples, um, rewards his disciples successful ministries and punishes those who can't boast about increasing church attendance. No, he's the author of their salvation who calls them to be faithful. Brothers, sisters, like many followers of Jesus today, Peter had some serious, serious misconceptions about Jesus, about the Messiah. He wanted to have a successful, a victorious Messiah who would establish a new, powerful kingdom on earth. He didn't want a suffering Christ. This is how Jesus responds to Peter. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Our Lord speaks sternly to Peter, because with his rebuke, Peter has made himself an instrument of the devil. What Peter wants Jesus to do to build an earthly kingdom and to avoid suffering and the cross is precisely what the devil wants. It is the tempter who speaks to, through Peter at this moment. It is the tempter who wants a political, nationalistic Messiah. But Jesus would be a very different Messiah. He is to be a suffering Christ, conquering not the enemies of Israel, but the enemies of all mankind. Sin, death, and hell. He is to be the crucified Christ, achieving not peace with Rome, but peace with God. He is to be the Christ who will not kill his enemies, but who will die for them. And yes, he is to be the Christ who will be raised from the dead, ascend into heaven, and one day return in glory. Peter had a big misconception about Jesus' messiahship, and that misconception could easily lead to another misconception. And that brings us to our last hurdle and the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus, or put differently, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Friends, Jesus knew that Peter's misunderstanding of his messiahship could easily lead to a misunderstanding of discipleship. And so Jesus decides to teach them a lesson. It's a rather challenging lesson. Jesus spells out what following him really means. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, he says. Anyone who is serious about following Jesus must take 
the same path, the path of the cross, the path of suffering. You see, the cross was a place of tremendous pain. It was a place of rejection, of humiliation, of loneliness, and of shame. And Jesus is asking Peter and his fellow disciples not only to accept the necessity for a cross for him, no, he is asking them also to accept a cross for themselves. Our Lord is very honest about that. He doesn't hide any terms and conditions in the small print on the back page of the church membership application form. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Likewise, John in his gospel recalls the following words of Jesus. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Becoming a follower of Jesus means to become a cross-bearer, one who shares in his sufferings. Isn't that a bit much to ask for, a cross-bearer? Well, Jesus wasn't talking about anything that he wasn't willing to do. If there is one person who has the right to ask us to carry our crosses, it is Jesus. But please note that Jesus doesn't encourage his disciples to actively look for their crosses. No, if they follow him, the crosses will be given to them. All they have to do is to pick them up. All they have to do is to accept them. Friends, to be a true follower of Jesus is costly. There is no discipleship without suffering. How does that sound to you? It's scary, isn't it? There's no discipleship without suffering. That's a scary thought. But perhaps it's scary because we are no longer used to that kind of language. In 21st century Britain, we avoid talking about suffering if we can, because at the end of the day, we all pursue happiness, but not the kind of happiness that the Bible is talking about. Our society tells us that first and foremost, happiness is about money. It's money that buys happiness. Yes, we might give away money for good courses, but only after having paid for all the things that are supposed to make us happy. The latest iPhone, the foreign holiday, the cruise, the private pension that will allow us to keep our, our lifestyles until we die. In many respects, our lifestyles as Christians don't differ much from the lifestyles of non-Christians in this country. We believe that God wants us to be happy and that we would be less happy without all these things. Worldly happiness has made its way into the church. Worldly happiness. If something makes us happy, we will sign up for it. But if something makes us suffer, we will steer clear of it. Suffering is seen as something to be avoided, to be avoided at all costs. 
And so we keep quiet when people make decisions that are not good for them. If there is a certain lifestyle that makes other people happy, who am I to tell them that they are, what they are doing is actually against God's will? Who am I to ask them to make sacrifices? Who am I to ask them to suffer for Jesus? Let's face it, at the end of the day, we are not very different from Peter and his fellow disciples. Like them, we want to have a Christ without a cross. A Christ without a cross. Then we won't have to carry a cross either. We want to have a Christ who fixes all our problems, but not one who demands sacrifices from us. But this is what Jesus expects from you and me. He calls us to suffer. Following him makes suffering unavoidable. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Peter and his fellow disciples would soon learn what that meant for them. They would be beaten up, kicked out of towns and cities, thrown into dark prison cells, and most of them would lose their lives for Jesus' sake. Luke tells us in the book of Acts that the apostle James was executed with a sword on the order of King Herod Agrippa. The church father Eusebius writes that the apostle Peter was crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to die in the same way that Jesus had died. The way of Jesus is the way of suffering. The way of Jesus is the way of self-denial. Self-denial means saying no to things we might want, deserve, or need. Self-denial means making sacrifices for the sake of the good news of the gospel. And self-denial means accepting that we might not always get justice on this side of heaven. Having said that, and that's important, self-denial doesn't mean silently accepting toxic environments which, harms, uh, which harm ourselves and others. Self-denial doesn't mean silently suffering from an abusive family member, a manipulative line manager, or a controlling church leader. That is not self-denial, that is self-destruction. Self-denial, friends, isn't a popular concept in Britain today. Instead of self-denial, Christians talk about the right to be themselves. Just be yourself. Be what you feel you are. That's the message of the day. There is no room for self-denial and sacrifice. Tell me, what have you denied yourself to follow Jesus? What's your cross that Jesus has asked you to carry? What's your cross? I'm sure there must be one, at least, probably more. For some Christians, their cross is called singleness. And that can be a tough cross. I know some wonderful Christians who are carrying that cross. Every wedding invitation they receive can trigger strong emotions. 
Then there is the pressure by well-meaning Christian friends and family members to find someone and to get married. As if marriage is the best thing since sliced bread. As if, it, as if an unmarried Christian is somehow incomplete. As if the Bible has nothing to say, nothing positive to say about being a single person. Well, Jesus wasn't married. It's very likely that the Apostle Paul wasn't married either. Were they both incomplete? No, they weren't. Did they miss God's calling on their lives? No, they didn't. The cross of singleness can be a heavy one. It takes a lot of self-denial to carry that cross. It takes a lot of faith to resist entering unhelpful relationships. The last thing single Christians need is a church that puts them under pressure. What they need are fellow believers who help them to carry that cross. And that's what we all need. We need each other to carry our crosses. Friends, followers of Jesus are cross-bearers. We are cross-bearers. But there is another important side to Christian discipleship. There is a promise that Jesus makes to his disciples here. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Those who won't take risks and make sacrifices for Jesus' sake will lose real life, eternal life, a life that knows the living God forever. But those who deny their right to rule over their own lives, those who carry their crosses, the crosses that has been given to them, crosses for the sake of Jesus, even if it should end in martyrdom, will win real life, says Jesus. Following the suffering Jesus means following the conquering Jesus. Yes, Jesus would suffer and die, but he would also conquer death. And his followers would share in this great blessing at his return. Friends, who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean to follow him? Three simple questions and three straightforward answers from Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus came to defeat the enemies of all mankind, sin, death, and hell. And finally, to follow Jesus means to carry the crosses that are given to us, knowing that eternal life is ours and looking forward to the day when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angel. Praise be to God. Amen.